Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin here with my colleagues, John Avalon. Hola. And Harry Enton. Shalomi, my homie. <laughs> it's still my favorite one. This week, we will talk about the ongoing and fast-moving impeachment inquiry and how it's going to influence 2020. Then we have two new polls from two key early primary states to dive into. And finally, it's the end of a quarter, and you know what that means. Money, money, and more money. New fundraising totals are in, and that means fun times for us. Putting the fun in fundraising. Always. Hey, hey. But first, let's get the latest forecast. Mr. Enton, where do things stand? So, my dear friends here at the <laughs> Forecast Fest, you, of course, know that biweekly I do a power rankings with Christopher Saliza, who's down in our beautiful Washington Bureau, a wonderful place if you've never been. Um, and let's get these latest power rankings because there are some changes here. There are some changes. Dun, dun, dun. So we have put Tom Steyer, who was previously unranked, we put him at number 10. Um, Amy Klobuchar is unchanged at 9. 8 unchanged Andrew Yang. 7 unchanged Cory Booker. 6 unchanged Beto O'Rourke. Here is a change, though. Number 5, Kamala Harris, the senator from California. She's down a spot from 4. Pete Buttigieg is up a spot from 5, now to 4. Bernie Sanders is at 3. Two is Elizabeth Warren, and number one, of course, is the former Vice President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. But I will say there was some real deliberations about one and two. Okay. We, we were not sure whether or not Biden or Warren should be number one, and here is the reason why. If we can get into this a little bit more, but essentially, if you look at the polling right now, we do see Elizabeth Warren. Climbing in the polling, not so much Joe Biden falling, but Elizabeth Warren certainly climbing so that I think if you were to put Warren one and Biden two, it wouldn't be a huge shocker to me. Uh, can I ask another question yes, about your uh, calculations? Mm-hmm. Do, 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 do. Tom Steyer breaking into the top 10 on yes, the back sir. of basically a big ad spend. Talk to me, man. How'd you decide? So he, I think this Avalon is, is opposed to this. No, I'm just curious. He's, he's curious. He's skeptically curious. Skeptical. He's dire curious. <laughs> um, here, here's the deal. The deal is that you got to make the debates to carry on in this campaign. And our previous number ten right was right. was Julian Castro. And the fact is, if you're being real with yourself and you're looking at the qualifying polls heading into the November debate. There is some real doubt whether or not Castro will make that debate versus with Steyer. There's a fairly good shot at this point that he is, in fact, going to make that debate. So based upon that, we moved him up. Okay. A, wither Tulsi. B, evidence of the Biden wither boomerang. Wither Tulsi. Stop. You're too good today. <laughs> wither Tulsi is going to be the, uh, the title of my no, short story collection. Biden boomerang gonna, has to be it. But, but, but that's, yeah. that's a classic. As long as, as long as I get to write the forward. Um, no, I, I, look, I think that we've seen that, you know, if you go after Biden, it's not necessarily something that helps you out. I, I think we saw that with Castro. We saw that with Harris falling back over time. Now at number five. And the reason she's number five is pretty simple. Look at those polls. She is not doing well. She's simply not doing well. I'm just. So, OK. 
This leads me to yeah, the unanswerable yes. question, which I will pose. What is left for Har- What is left out there for Harris to try to stop the dropping, to stop the bleeding? Stop the drop. Nothing. It's a real thing that I made up. Nothing I have seen so far has worked. Big debate performance, bounce, but then... Decline. Thank you. Focusing in on Iowa, moving to Iowa, basically... Not, Not so, so far. Didn't work for Chris Dodd. Go keep going. Oh, Chris Ooh. Dodd. Rolling out more policy. No bump. Talking more about her personal story, which was part of the reset going into the last debate. No bump. I just don't. Time. I think time is the answer. Time is the thickener. Time is the thickener. Look, there is going to be either the media is going to push it or the voters are going to push it or together they're going to push it. There's going to be want the yearning for a third, fourth character in this race. People will get sick of Biden, Warren pretty, pretty fast in my mind. And if you look at Harris's numbers in Iowa on the favorable ratings, they're still pretty decent. So that would be the thing that I'd be looking for is to see if when the attention gets turned, maybe she can be the alternative. And when you're thinking about being a Biden alternative, that leads us to exactly what we should be talking about right now. You're seeing a little bit of movement in the top rankings, but But the big unknown and the new factor adding in now is what does impeachment do to all of this? House Democrats, they're promising that this impeachment investigation is not going to be dragging on for months and months and months. Most of the smart money and folks that I've been talking to say that they're looking at a possible vote if it happens in the House around the beginning of the year. But that is right about before when voters are going to be heading to the polls. So at the center of this impeachment investigation, importantly, is a story about Joe Biden, Donald Trump asking the president of Ukraine on a phone call to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. So with that being the table set before Mm -hmm. us, first and foremost, Harry, is there any indication so far? It's literally it's been light speed, but it's been basically a week that this is impacting Biden. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think the real answer is a question mark. If you know, if I was to draw a big question mark on my page, as I just did, you can't see it, but it's there. You can really. imagine like, it. Honestly, it's like you drew it with your eyes closed and your eyes are open. And, and I don't like know five. what happened. And I'm well, I am. I'm actually <laughs> four. Match- oh, right. Benjamin Button. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm going. Oh, backwards. happy birthday. <laughs> Look, I mean, if you <laughs> hold it together, it's like it's Friday. It's not Friday yet, people. Uh, um, if you were to look at the national polling, right, I'm not sure you see a ton of movement. I think Biden's still generally averaging in the high 20s. Polls like Morning Consult showed no movement. Harris X showed no movement. YouGov perhaps showed a little movement downwards for Biden, although it's really more movement towards Warren. Um, a mammoth poll that literally came out just before this podcast had Warren and Biden a statistical dead heat. Um, but Warren slightly ahead, but Biden actually up from their prior poll. I'm not sure that we can say at this point that this is hurting Biden and the Democratic primary, Um, but I think there is a real question, a real question. If Joe Biden's central argument to this campaign is an electability argument and I can beat Donald Trump, does stuff like this potentially hurt him when all of a sudden it starts reminding folks maybe of the Clinton stuff that happened four years ago? All right. Let me let me let me do a counter uh, projection mm-hmm. into the future. Um, first of all, this does what Biden has been trying to do for a long time, which was put him on a stage of sort of mano a mano with Donald Trump. Right? This is a Trump v. Sure. Biden fight. Obviously, we know why Donald Trump wants this fight, right? He's going at Biden's core strength um, by saying that, look, you may think he's folksy and honest and tied to Barack, but actually he's Clinton redux. You think I'm corrupt. He's corrupt, too. Therefore, it's a wash. Um, that could 
uh, gain some 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 you know real weight on his candidacy. You could see like a Mitch McConnell call him to testify in a Senate trial, hypothetically, uh, which would be a a rough move for the person he believes is his friend. But spoiler alert, he's not. Um, <laughs> but um, but but I'll also say this: what you've seen in the impeachment polls to date, and CNN's poll in particular, um, is a rise in people who would not only say they're open to impeachment, but impeach and remove. In that number in CNN's poll, what really blew my mind: eight percent increase among Republicans, eleven percent among independents over the last few months. Um, those folks are going to be less likely to be enthusiastic about an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So a centrist candidate who offers stability a la Biden is going to be much more attractive to them. So I, I'd say that that, that that dynamic would strengthen Biden's chances, not weaken. But you looked at this. Who are these Republicans? What who story are these Republicans? Who, who are these Republicans? So in our poll, as John was mentioning previously, it was a 41-54 split, 41 percent wanting impeach remove, 54 percent saying no. That's shifted now. So 47 percent they want to impeach remove, 45 percent say they don't. That's a statistical dead heat. That is essentially even. Uh, you can't really say which way the public actually leaning. But if you're to look at it, John mentioned the Republicans that are moving. But in particular, it's the moderate to liberal Republicans, that sort of left third flank of the party, which doesn't get a lot of coverage in the Trump era. Third, you think? It's a third, according to our polling. It's maybe 30 percent, so on and so forth. It's significantly less in Congress, obviously. Right. But if we look at the percentage who said that they want to impeach or remove, in May, it was 16 percent. Now it's up to 28 percent. But, of course, what's interesting to me is if you look at the very conservatives, that's the ultimate Trump base, right? It was 2 percent who wanted to impeach and remove back in May. It's now only 1 percent when our latest poll takes in September. Yeah. And that gets to – because what what is a tipping point? What would turn the tide for Republicans on Capitol Hill, Republican senators? It has to do with where the conversation is, what is the temperature of their states and of their districts. And there's nothing in these numbers that say that the tide is turning anytime soon. That's for sure. Well, I, I'd, I'd say two things about that. First of all, I think a lot of the support for impeachment, and one of the reasons why, for example, the CBS poll had a significantly higher number open to impeachment, it was 55% as opposed to our poll, is the way we asked our question, which was impeach and remove. Right. It's a much higher bar. One of the striking things about an analysis Harry did on New Day the other day was compare the uh, 47% number with, for example, Clinton at roughly this time, uh, Nixon. Trump is higher. These are bad news. So you take a look then at the Republicans in the, the Senate. Um, he's likely to be impeached knowing what we know now in the House. Let's assume that. Obviously, conviction in the Senate, two-thirds, incredibly high bar. Now, could senators like Cory Gardner or, or Susan Collins, who are very vulnerable, move? Yes. Is that going to move it to a two-thirds? Probably not. No. But how, historically speaking, yeah. go into how that stacks up, because I, I'm going to argue that I would just argue that it's such a different time. It is, mm -hmm. a, di it is a different time. So I'll, I'll say a few things. Number one, I think John is correct to point out, right? We are polarized about impeach, remove. The impeachment inquiry, Monmouth actually has a trend line going from August. We see something similar, right? Back in August, 41 percent thought it was a good idea to start the impeachment inquiry. 51 percent thought it was a bad idea. Now those numbers have flipped. It's 49 percent think it's a good idea. 43 percent think it's a bad idea. So there is a clear plurality no matter which poll you look at on the inquiry, whether it's Quinnipiac, Monmouth, or CBS News, YouGov, that's support the inquiry. But, you know, you're pointing out that historical analogy. And yes, John is correct. More people right now are for the impeachment inquiry at this point in the process than they were Bill Clinton back in October of 1998. More people are for impeach removed now than were for Clinton in 1998 or Richard Nixon at this point in the 74 um, impeachment saga. Uh, but here's the key difference. The key difference is that polarization right now is very, very high. Right. They, the, the, the place where everyone begins is already 
years apart. Right. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, we spoke about that very conservative Republican number actually dropping back from two to one. Right. And I'm not sure that the room for growth will necessarily be there. Now, obviously, those those moderates, liberals who may move. But I think there's some questions whether or not even if you're further along on the road, the road might run out. OK, so that actually then I need to get your take on something that was brought up in uh, in a Monmouth poll. In the Monmouth poll, when asked if people believe Donald Trump brought up investigating Joe Biden in the call with Ukraine, among Republicans, only 40 percent said they believed he did. The kicker here is Donald Trump has admitted that he did. The transcript is clear that he did. That's reality. Forty, Only 40 percent of these folks polled are want to acknowledge reality is reality. I'm what does it so say? glad you brought that poll up because that to me is such a chilling number. It's not just the reality of the distortion field and the conservative, you know, partisan media bubble. This is people actually not believing what the transcript clearly shows and what the president has said. That's a level of denial that reflects partisan politics becoming something like a cult on the extreme. Is there any chance and maybe it's a good possibility. Still, it's early on. People have lives unlike us where they aren't focused on this entirely all the time that maybe folks are it's early enough that folks are still learning about sure. what's happening in this. Like, is do you, we need to allow for that in this, I, I, in this I, number? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, even if you're looking at the number, the percentage who are paying very close attention is and isn't anywhere near 100 percent on this. In fact, in a number of polls, it's below 50 percent. So I think there is time. Let's see how things marinate a little bit. Um, things can change. Things can shift. The public may be static as compared to prior relatively, but there's still plenty of time and the public can move on this stuff. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we focused a lot on Iowa and New Hampshire, of course, and how Democratic voters are leaning in those states. This week, let's look at a couple of other key states in the Democratic primary, South Carolina and Nevada. Then which candidates are making money moves? We'll talk Q3 fundraising. That's up next. We're back, friends. Sunday brought us some new polls from South Carolina and Nevada. In South Carolina, Joe Biden holds a clear lead, but that wasn't the story out west. So let's dive into these numbers uh, just a bit. So the two polls out in these two key early states tell two different stories. South Carolina heads to the polls February 29th in the Democratic primary. Nevada caucuses for Democrats on February 22nd, just for some background. Biden has a 21-point lead in South Carolina. And in Nevada, what do we say, Harry? It's basically a three-way tie? Right. I'd call it a top tier of Biden, Sanders, and Warren. Biden at 22, Sanders at 22, Warren at 18 in our poll. That is well within the margin of error. So can we – I guess let's just start with South Carolina. Is there any way to overcome this kind of gap that they're looking at in South Carolina to challenge sure. Joe Biden? He's got a huge lead. I, I think – I mean, look, the question – John Avalon shits like, me for John's my like, ignorance. How no. dare you even ask that I, I, question? I, I, I know all about the fragility of firewalls having worked on Rudy Giuliani's 2008 <laughs> campaign. We're a 35-point lead in Florida. How'd that turn out? Not so well. Not so well. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I'm fine. I'm fe- fine. How are you feeling today? I'm fine. Okay, Thank good, you. Good, I'm fine. Good. <laughs> I think the question is, this is the important number. In South Carolina, among African-Americans, Joe Biden, no matter pretty much what poll you look at, is scoring 40 percent of the vote or more. Elizabeth Warren in our poll was only at 4 percent among African-Americans. Among whites, 
um, in our poll, it's a statistical dead heat, both in the high 20s and in other polls. In fact, there was a Winthrop University poll that actually had worn up by seven among white voters. The question that I have is whether or not African-Americans will continue to stick by Joe Biden, and they have so far in this contest. And that might be the difference between, say, the Rudy Giuliani firewall in Florida and the Joe Biden firewall in South Carolina, which is it's a demographic firewall. It is a particular group of voters of which you don't have a lot in other states. And right now, African-Americans do not seem interested in any of the other Democratic candidates. All right. I'm going to offer a little reality check on South Carolina as uh, a, a, a state I once called home and uh, and I love a lot. South Carolina, it's not only about the diversity of the electorate there. It's also about the ideological, um, I think, skew of that state reflecting the South and a lot of the country, which a lot of the, the Iowa caucus has become more progressive, certainly than the state at large. Um, South Carolina isn't only more diverse with a you know, plurality of African-Americans, not an outright majority. It's a more conservative state, even in the Democratic Party. It is moderate. It is not far left. It is not a state that you're going to have a lot of Berniacs with a, a rising tide. And that's where South Carolina is an important sort of speed bump for Democrats on their way to the nomination. Um, because the Iowa and New Hampshire electorates are both white and more liberal than they have been in the past. Uh, the caucus in Nevada is is somewhat diverse, but very union heavy. Mm-hmm. And we will dig into those polls because that'll be before South Carolina, of course. But if you look at South Carolina, if you look at the kind of Democrats that win in South Carolina, it's reflective, for example, of the Democrat gubernatorial incumbent in uh, Louisiana who's running for re-election right now. The kind of Democrats who do well in the South are different than the kind of Democrats who do well in the Northeast. Uh, and so I think there's a there's Biden's got insurance on an ideological level as well as an African-American base. And it's notable, by the way, Cory Booker made some really good hires within the African-American Democratic establishment in South Carolina. It is so far not translated to a lot of support. Same with Kamala Harris. So so I think Biden's got a, a little bit of insurance, but three primaries of, and that's momentum, that's a big problem that no one should underestimate. All right, because it can change after Iowa. It can change it can dramatically say, uh, after New Hampshire. Two, three wins. It's very difficult to put uh, that genie back in the bottle. And we saw that obviously change back in 2008 when Obama and Clinton were basically tied in South Carolina. Then Obama won the Iowa caucuses and everything shifted rather dramatically. Uh, but, of course, Obama had a foothold within the African-American community that Elizabeth Warren simply put does not at this point. Uh, not even a little bit, by the not, way. Right? Not even a little bit. And I, I think that that's the real question is how does the sequential primary play out? Can- so which one's more important? Is there one that's more important because South Carolina's first in the South, but Nevada's – First right. of these two. I, I, I will say this is that a lot of states in the South look like South Carolina. There aren't a ton of states that look a lot like Nevada. Um, and, you know, if you see South Carolina, that can project out to Georgia, that can project out to Mississippi, that can check, project out to Alabama. Yeah, go ahead. And, and because it's a caucus, and just historically, to the extent that history is any measure, there's always a lot of attention on Iowa, first caucus, first vote. Then everybody immediately flies to New Hampshire, first primary. Nevada hasn't gotten the kind of attention yes, nationally in the past. Point. You better start saying Nevada or you're going to get in trouble, dude. John Ralston is going to come to your house. Get you know you. what? I just uh, – I can't. Nevada, Keep going. Nevada, Nevada. Anyway, South Carolina has you know, become – been, been considered a more crucial test mm-hmm. with a lot more attention. But I think, you know, look, if, let's say Elizabeth Warren pulls out the first three. That's a lot of momentum for Joe Biden to push back on. Um, and uh, while, while I think she's – Elizabeth Warren is a bad fit for the electorate in South Carolina, so is Bernie Sanders. 
the Biden team can't be just sending the message that, you know, we're betting it all on South yeah, Carolina. Yeah. That's what we'll turn the tide. And, and I think that the question isn't I think that Biden perhaps could overcome coming in not first in the early earliest contest, but he needs to come in a close second. He needs to be competitive. One other note I'll just I'll just say is if Pete Buttigieg is very is competitive or shows real signs of life in Iowa and New Hampshire, he shows no signs of life in either the Nevada <laughs> Or South Carolina. As soon as these electorates become more diverse, people to judge the support goes whoop. Also, just a note, these are two states that have canceled the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. And according to the polls that we're looking at here, they're OK with that. Even the ones even of the Republicans who aren't still overwhelmingly in support of the president, they're still OK with canceling the primary uh, among Republicans. What is it right now with Gallup is like 91 percent. He's at about 90 uh, with straight on Republicans with Republicans and leaners. He's close to 85. So, yes, Kate. About 91 percent. Thank you, Harry. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't do <laughs> about. Yeah. I don't also, do about. told there'd be no math. Kate. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's my line. Um, OK, let's move on. On Tuesday, it was announced that the Sanders campaign had raised 20 over 25 million dollars in the third quarter of 2019. So Sanders so far has been the big winner in the third quarter. The Buttigieg campaign announced a 19.1 million dollar haul and that Hail Mary fundraising effort by the Booker campaign that was discussed on last week's show, it found the end zone. Yay! Six points for Pittsburgh. Or With six million dollars, that too. Um, John, what is your take on fundraising right now? Look, I mean, money matters. Follow the money. Go through the reports. You'll get a sense of what's really happening right now. Um, Bernie had a huge quarter. Not a lot of people were expecting that necessarily because some of the enthusiasm has been going out of his campaign. He hasn't been rising the polls while Elizabeth Warren has. So that's a very strong turnout. Uh, Buttigieg, a very strong uh, quarter. Andrew Yang, a very strong quarter. What, 10 million? Yeah, he's like basically more than doubled his second quarter number. Yeah. Um, in the background of all of this is where's Joe Biden's number? Um, because if, Has, if, he's, if, yeah. if he's coming in around Pete Buttigieg levels uh, while still being the prohibitive front runner, that's going to be a problem, not just from a narrative standpoint. Um, as, as Harry pulled out some amazing numbers we can dig into about you know past third quarter results and how they don't really track with who ultimately wins the nomination. Um, but money helps. If you don't have money, you got to make a lot of tough choices. And, uh, and, and, and you're seeing a lot of candidates who are kind of down ballot or haven't been getting a lot of media attention – very strong quarters. Well, and so, Harry, who raises the most? Does that person win? Not always. I mean, oftentimes they do. I mean, obviously, Walter Mondale won in the 84 Dem nomination. Dukakis won the 88 Dem nomination. Dole won the GOP nomination. Uh, 2000, Bush won. Um, and you could go on from there. But here there are a bunch of people who didn't. For instance, in 80, Reagan was not the leader of the Republicans. Granted, it was weird when he was exactly getting in the race. Um, mm. In 1988, Bush actually trailed both Dole and Robertson in this quarter. Um, and if you were to look in 2000 and the Dems, Bradley outraised Gore and Gore won every single primary and caucus that year. Um, and in 2007, what you saw was that. Mitt Romney was leading uh, the GOP and John McCain was way back 2003 with the Democrats. Howard Dean was leading. He obviously lost that nomination. And in 2011 with the Republicans, you saw that Rick Perry outraged Mitt Romney. So there are a (laughs) number of years in which the leader in this particular quarter does not actually go on to win the nomination. So look, you need to be competitive. You need to be high up there. Um, but you don't need to necessarily be number one. Let me just flag the Howard Dean, right? I mean, in 2003, he has got 
almost $15 million in Q3, and John Kerry, who won the nomination, had only four. So, I mean, th- that multiple difference is massive, and it shows that this stuff is is not determinative. Um, but it, it's tough to be the front runner uh, to have as much sort of establishment support as Joe Biden and be potentially trailing a lot of insurgent candidates and certainly underperforming expectations. So it definitely means staying power, but yes. it doesn't mean everything. And isn't fundraising as part of your forecast secret sauce, right? Right, yeah. That, is it more, is it more right, or I, less I, I, than... I, I, right. I, yeah, it's not what I would call the number one thing in, mm-hmm. the, in the secret sauce. It's not the first thing that I look towards. But let's be real. You need money to compete. You can't be raising no money. If you are, you're not going to be able to get ads on the air and you're not going to be able to move your campaign forward. The way I sort of think about money is you don't necessarily want to, need to be number one, but you don't want to be the last person either. Always be closing. Uh, as, uh, as David Mamet once told us. But we should also mention one thing uh, that people aren't paying enough attention to. Donald Trump. Um, you oh, you know, mean $125 million? $125 million in Q3. So you could say his fundamentals are bad. You can say he's unpopular. But he has raised a boatload of cash unbelievable amount, multiples of what the Democrats are putting right now. It's the benefits of incumbency. Yeah, it's true. Um, but don't ignore that fact. I think there's a the question that I ultimately have about the 2020 campaign is will this be another campaign in which both general election major party nominees are underwater? At this point, it looks like Donald Trump has been underwater pretty much throughout his entire, entire, pres- time. Yeah. entire presidency. And right now, if you were to look, for instance, at that latest Monmouth poll, pretty much all the potential Democrats, with the exception of Biden, who is right at about even, are all underwater. And, that could- and that's just – on favorability? That's just on favorability. That's on favorability, your net fav, favorable minus okay. unfavorable. Um, and so I think that is the real question is can Donald Trump use this massive war chest to bring the Democrats down to his level? If he can, then all this stuff about Donald Trump being so unpopular may not be necessarily the best way to look at this campaign. That's interesting. One thing we don't know but I am interested in is you hear a lot of Democratic candidates shunning big dollar donations and also shunning entire industries like the like big pharma. They won't take money from pharmaceutical companies. I haven't seen anything that can indicate, I don't know if you can, that voters care about that, that that impacts them in their fundraising or in their vote. It's just or I, it's just something they do. I think that this is Washington Beltway liberal elitist totally. type of talk. No one cares. And, and, and it, it really it, it actually drives me crazy because it's a lot of virtue signaling. It has a real impact and, and it doesn't have any in terms of what, you know, the, what the money they can put in their war chest. And it doesn't and no sign it actually impacts voters. Look, Cory Booker swears off the pharmaceutical industry. Guess who's like the largest employer in his state? Right. So it, it just right. I, I, it, it, I just think it's a it's a cut off your nose despite your face move by a lot of these folks. Story of our lives. Ah. On this show. That does it for us today, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It does help new listeners find the show. And you can always find us in the meantime on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. John? At John Avalon. Harry? At Forecaster Enton. That's an N at the end of that. Like that's in question? No, but I just figured I'd say it. Forecaster <laughs> Entman. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and Emma Soslowski. We'll see you right back here next time on the Forecast Fest.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.